Good evening and welcome to episode 101 of Mystery, Murder, and Mayhem. The kids, well, I say kids, plural, like I've still got a bunch of kids still in school. But Nick, he's back in school from spring break. So peace has somewhat been restored back to the triple M abode. Um, so there's that. And I'm not sure about how it is where y'all are at, but... It's been kind of unseasonably cool here this week, and it's just weird to me because usually by now, we're getting into the 80s. Like Sunday, we never even made it out of the 40s. Now, I'm not complaining, of course, because I do enjoy the cooler weather. I am not a summer person, but I'm just saying that it's kind of weird for us. Well, anyway... I'm just rambling. But anyway, I'm going to move on to tonight's episode. And I'm going to be telling y'all tonight the story of four murders that took place back in 1981. And to this day, which is exactly 42 years later, the killer or killers have never been caught. The details are baffling to say the least. So y'all stick around so you can hear all about it. Now, to give a bit of a background on the circumstances, let's go back a couple of years before the murders took place. In July of 1979, Sue Sharp decided to move to the other side of the United States after she and her husband, James, separated. She packed up her five kids, left their home in Connecticut, and they drove cross-country to Northern California, where Sue's brother lived. When the family arrived in California, they moved into this small rental trailer that her brother had lived in for a little while. Um, and they, the trailer was located at the Claremont Trailer Village. But they didn't live there long uh, in that little small trailer. It was just a temporary place for them to stay because soon the family was able to move into cabin number 28 in Caddy, California. Well... Katy, California is not exactly a big booming town. Um, I'm not even sure that it's incorporated into a town, but um, we'll just call it a small town. Now, I know I say, say that I come from a small town, but my town that I live in looks like a metropolis area compared to Katy because the census back in 2020 said that the population of caddy was a whole 68 people so yeah it's pretty small and it only takes up 413 acres now i'm thinking that it might be just some like this camping area type thing that people may stay at long term i'm not sure i should have looked more into the town so i would have known more about it but here we are anyway along with the mom her name was Susan, or they called her Sue. The family consisted of 15-year-old John, 14-year-old Sheila, 12-year-old Tina, 10-year-old Rick, and 8-year-old Greg. And I'm sure they probably had, you know, your normal family problems, but for the most part, I believe they were a happy family. 
And they had all started making friends there in the area where they had moved to. So now it's 1981, and around 11.30 on the morning of April the 11th, 1981, Sue, along with Greg and Sheila, left the home of some friends, and they drove into Quincy to pick up Rick. He had been there for some baseball tryouts. And somewhere along the way back home, Sue picked up her son John and his friend Dana, who were hitchhiking. And it seemed like a pretty normal day. And then later that afternoon, around 3.30, John and Dana left the house to go back into Quincy. I had read that they were going to a friend's house for maybe a party. <clears throat> but anyway, later that evening... Sheila had plans to spend the night with a friend who lived in cabin number 27. So, you know, like I said, the family lived in cabin 28. So they were right there adjacent to each other. So she left from their cabin number 28 around 8 p.m. to spend the night with that friend. And when she got there, her sister, Sheila's sister, Tina, was already there at the friend's home. But Sheila reminded her that, their mom wanted her to be back home by 10. So around 9.55, Tina left to go back home. All seemed normal. But at 8 p.m. the next morning, or 8 a.m., sorry about that, the next morning when Sheila returned home, everything was far from normal. Upon entering the home, Sheila found the bodies of her mom, her brother John, and John's friend Dana. They were all deceased on the living room floor. Well, as soon as she saw that, Sheila rushed back to the neighbor's house where she had spent the night and told them what she found. Well, the dad at that house, his name was Jamie Seabold. He was, you know, able to go over, check out the situation. And then he found that the two young boys, Rick and Greg, were a lot, or were just fine. They were in their bedroom along with a friend named Justin Smart who had spent the night. And that neighbor was able to get those three boys out through the bedroom window. Well, the funny thing is, those none of those three boys, they didn't have a scratch on them. But sadly, the same thing couldn't be said for John, Dana, or John's mom, Sue. Their murders had been particularly brutal. Now, along with their bodies, two bloody knives and a hammer were found at the scene. Sue was found laying on her side near the couch in the living room, and she was nude from the waist down. She had been gagged with a blue bandana and her own underwear, and those had been secured to her mouth with tape. She also had a stab wound to the chest. Her throat had been slashed. And that slash was so deep, y'all, that it had gone through her larynx and grazed her spine. She had been struck so hard with the butt of a gun on the side of her head that it left the imprint. And that imprint was from a Daisy 880 Powerline BB gun. Now, John's throat had been slashed also, and Dana had multiple head injuries, along with being strangled to death. Both John and Dana had suffered blunt force trauma to their heads, 
caused by a hammer or hammers. Autopsy results concluded that Sue and John had died from their knife wounds and blunt force trauma, and Dana had died from asphyxiation. Now, I've mentioned Sue, I've mentioned John, I've mentioned the two little boys and the two friends that had been over. But y'all, there's still somebody missing, and that was Tina. Where was she? She was absolutely nowhere to be found. The really odd thing about this is that Sheila had only been next door at the Seabolt's cabin, and no one there had heard anything going on. But the folks in cabin number 16 said that they had heard a muffled scream sometime around 1.15 that morning. The house showed no forced entry, but the phone cord, now it had been cut at the outlet so that, you know, nobody could call for help, and the curtains and the windows had been drawn shut. The only items missing from the home was Sheila's jacket and some shoes and a toolbox that contained random tools. In the beginning, a neighbor named Martin Smart was a person of interest in the case. Now, if this last name sounds familiar, it's because he's the dad of the little boy, Justin, who had been staying with the Sharps on the night of the murders. And he claimed that his claw hammer had mysteriously disappeared from his home. And in accordance to Sheriff Sylvester Thomas, who was supervising the investigation, Smart had provided a ton of clues in the case that seemed to throw the guilt away from himself but eventually he and other neighbors they were all cleared of any involvement in the murders justin the little friend of the younger boys who had been there that night gave conflicting accounts of what he saw or heard that night now at one point he said that he dreamed the details of the murders and then later he claimed to have witnessed them you gotta remember though this was little kids because the two little boys that he was spending the night with were eight and ten years old, so I'm uh, pretty sure he was in that age range himself. Well, later when he was under hypnosis, he said that he awoke to sounds coming from the living room. And he got up to see what those sounds were, and he saw Sue with two men. And he was able to give a description of those two men. And he said that one had short hair and a mustache, and the other... He had long hair and was clean-shaven, but both of the men wore glasses. And he went on to say that John and Dana entered the home, and they began arguing arguing with the men, and that it soon became a physical fight. Well, after the fight, Tina came into the living room, but she was soon taken out of the cabin through the back door by one of the men. Now, like in any case, you know, rumors started circulating. And in this case, the rumor was that the murders were either ritualistic or drug-motivated. But Sheriff Thomas would soon dismiss those rumors because no drug paraphernalia or illegal drugs had been found at the crime scene. And after that, a family acquaintance told authorities that Dana, John's friend, had stolen an unknown amount of LSD from a local drug dealer that acquaintance was never able to prove that that claim was even true. 
And through all of this, the question remained of, where is Tina? Now, at first, the FBI was investigating her disappearance as a kidnapping. But once the month of April was coming to an end, the FBI kind of backed off of the search, saying that California State Department of Justice was doing an adequate job in the investigation, and they didn't feel that they were even needed there. But despite all of the law enforcement's best efforts, Tina was nowhere to be found, and she wouldn't be found until just over three years after the murders. A bottle collector actually found the cranium portion of a human skull and part of a jawbone at Camp 18 in nearby Butte County. And I say it's nearby, but it was actually about 100 miles away from where she had went missing. Now, shortly after Butte County Sheriff's Department announced the discovery of the bones, an anonymous caller identified the bones as belonging to Tina Sharp. But for whatever reason, this call was never documented in the, the case records. And it wouldn't be until 2013, just 10 years ago, that the recording of this call would be found. But a positive ID on the bones that were found was completed by pathologists, and they were able to confirm that they belonged to Tina. Well, also found near her remains was a blue nylon jacket, a pair of Levi's, uh, Levi blue jeans, and an empty medical tape dispenser. Now, I did say earlier that the FBI didn't continue the search for Tina because, like I said, they said that the local authorities were doing a fine job with their investigation, but I have to tell y'all, this is n not a fine investigation. It, there was a lot of botched things going on from the very beginning. A lot of evidence or potential evidence was collected at the crime scene. But y'all, this took place in the days before DNA testing. So what they had collected was pretty much useless to them. Now, one thing I, I did find really odd was that when Sheriff Thomas called in for help from the Sacramento Department of Justice, they sent agents from their organized crime unit, not homicide detectives, which I found very peculiar. And then three months into the investigation, Sheriff Thomas resigned and took a job with the Sacramento Department of Justice. Now, many folks close to the case have said that Thomas's handling of the case was disastrous and corrupt. And one person even went as far to say that Thomas had told suspects that it would be best if they got out of town. But now let's go back to Martin Smart for a minute. Martin's wife, Marilyn, left her husband on the day that the bodies were discovered in the Sharp residence. Marilyn provided police with a handwritten letter that Martin has sent her afterwards that read, quote, I've paid the price for your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we are through. Great. What else do you want? End quote. But get this, y'all. This letter from Martin was never considered as a confession, and the police never even followed up on it. In 2008, Marilyn Smart said on a documentary that she had suspected that her husband and his friend, John Boobidi, I think is how you pronounce it, 
don't shoot me if I'm wrong, but um, she's, I had always felt that those two were responsible for the Caddy murders. And she said that on the night of April the 11th, 1981, she left Martin and John at a bar around 11 p.m. and she went home to go to sleep. Around 2 a.m., she woke up to find that the two men were burning an unknown object in the wood stove. Well, Sheriff Thomas was also on that documentary, and he disputed what Marilyn had said, and he went on to say that Martin had passed a polygraph test. Now, whether the two men had actually anything to do with the murders will probably never be found out because um, Boobadee, he passed away in 1988, and Martin passed away in 2000. Well, since then, bits and pieces of evidence have been found. Now, in 2016, a hammer that matched the description of what was used in the murders was found in a pond that had been drained or had dried out. And local authorities believe that it was placed there intentionally. Then, in 2018, DNA that was recovered from a piece of tape at the crime scene was found to match a known living suspect but as far as i can tell there's nothing else been released about that little bit of information like no names or anything like that now one theory that i do want to mention in this and keep in mind that it's only a theory is that some believe that there was a love trial angle involving sue martin and marilyn apparently martin and sue were having an affair all the while Marilyn was crying to Sue that Martin was abusive to her and Sue was encouraging Marilyn to leave Martin well when Martin got word of this he enlisted his friend Boobadee who has been known to have mob connections he wanted Boobadee to take Sue out of the equation and that would explain Marilyn leaving on the morning the bodies were discovered. And it also provides an explanation for that letter that I read to y'all earlier. And maybe, y'all, just maybe, that explains why the Sacramento Department of Justice sent organized crime agents instead of homicide investigators. So, could it be that two suspects with ties to organized crime, given a that maybe they were given a free pass on murders that they may have committed. And is this why maybe Sheriff Thomas told them to get out of, of town? I mean, I, it could very well explain why this case has never been solved. And it was so sloppily investigated. And it wasn't a priority to the Sacramento Department of Justice. I mean, these are just my speculations, but I mean, think about it. It, it kind of makes sense, right? Well, hopefully with the new advances in forensics, sooner or later this case will be solved and closed. Um, and if and when it does, I'll be sure to bring that to you. Um, that's all I've really got for tonight. I know it was kind of a short episode, but um, it was one that I hadn't heard of, and it was one of those... Stories that I stumbled on while researching another story. So, I, I found that pretty interesting. Now, um, you know, I've mentioned before that in the, the episode 
description there's links to the various social media um sites but i've also added some uh links to my paypal venmo and cash app and i normally don't like asking for money i don't because i do this just because it's something fun for me to do but soon i'm gonna be having surgery that i need to better my quality of life um and i need the cash to pay for what the part that my insurance won't pay but anyway um so i'm just leaving that there if anybody you know feels like they want to help a girl out feel free but anyway y'all if you don't it's fine it you know i'll still be here doing episodes anyway i want y'all to have a good night and come back next week for an all-new episode <laughs>